As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Today's episode is brought to you in part by thisisbracketracing.com. Obviously, if you are listening to this podcast, odds are you are a sportsman drag racer. If you are interested in becoming a better sportsman drag racer, that's what thisisbracketracing.com is all about. Easy to get started. Simply visit thisisbracketracing.com. The first thing that you see on the homepage is an opportunity to get a free lesson of your choice. This comes from our library that now includes 350 plus video and written lessons dedicated to literally every aspect of our sport. Again, your choice, one lesson, free today. Check it out. Thisisbracketracing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes and adult film stars. Yeah. Today's show, our special guest is none other than Wes Buck. Wes, you probably know as the founder and editorial director at Drag Illustrated. In addition, he is also the promoter of the SeaTech World Door Slammer Nationals, presented by JEGS, the second annual World Door Slammer Nationals coming to Orlando Speed World in less than a month. And do you know how sometimes you just, you have people, individuals, that every time you talk to them, 
you just you can't help but learn like they just have a, a perspective altering way of looking at things i've got a handful of people like that in my life in various capacities and wes is one of them uh, as you listen through this uh, i think and, and hope that you'll feel the same way like he's just got a a unique way of looking at things he's so not only well spoken but just his thoughts are put together in a way that I just think is very unique like he's just very clear and easy to follow and you may be listening to this and asking okay Wes Buck like I, I know who that is but what the hell like this is the sportsman drag racing podcast we talk about big dollar bracket racing we talk about the the Lucas Oil sportsman categories like what on earth does an event like the the World Door Slammer Nationals like how does that apply to us right well this discussion comes on the heels if you heard Jed and I last week where we kind of got a little bit into the weeds in terms of the the business aspect of sportsman drag racing it started as a conversation as to uh, is there anyone that's truly making a living a sustainable living driving race cars and we talked about race promoters we talked about racetracks and track owners we talked about the industry surrounding um, our level of the sport and when we bring Wes in like it's a completely different perspective like the the challenges that go into putting on an event as massive as the World Door Slammer Nationals which as I said to him and he didn't really push back on like is arguably like the biggest drag race in the world if it's not it's on the very very short list and we kind of juxtaposed the way that he approaches that and the uh, the boxes that he has to check versus the the boxes that a, a big dollar bracket promoter has to check and i even asked him like what would you do based given your unique experience in this game if you were to put on a big dollar bracket race like i assume that it would look a little bit different than some of the big dollar bracket races um, that are on the calendar today like specifically what would you do and the, his answers and just the entire discussion it was fascinating i hope that you enjoy it as much as i did Joining me now, founder and editorial director at Drag Illustrated, promoter of the World Series of Pro Mod, and probably more notably, at least recently, uh, promoter of the, the soon upcoming uh, second annual, I believe, SeaTech World Door Slammer Nationals presented by Jegs, Wes Buck. Wes, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to join us here on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Luke. It's a real privilege and honor. Uh, I appreciate all you do for the sport. So anytime I get to hang out with you uh, in person or on the internet, I'm down. Good stuff, man. Listen, I, I want to start here. Like we, your, your resume precedes you and you've been involved in uh, this industry and this sport on multiple levels now for you know the majority of your life, certainly probably all your adult life. Um, but I want to start with the, the promotion aspect of this. And we talked a little bit off air. Uh, you promote the, the World Door Slammer Nationals, which maybe I'm overstating it, but if I am, it's not by much. Like This might be the biggest non-NHRA professional drag race on the planet. If it's not, it's on the very, very short list of those, right? On I last hope so. I mean, I hope <laughs> so. Yeah. On last week's show, Jed and I talked about kind of the financial side 
of big dollar racing and we went down a, a number of different paths within that uh focusing on the racer you know is there anybody actually making money or making a living uh driving a, a big dollar bracket car uh to track owners to race promoters to the industry surrounding the sport uh, we did that prior to completely going off the rails last episode and just to go back down that road i'll put you on the spot here wes no that's great <clears throat> i love going off the rails well, I've got, <laughs> I can't believe that we did this. I can't believe that I'm bringing it back up. I've got one name for you. And the name is Walt Thrower. And my question to you, this is a question that I posed to Jed last week. Is Walt Thrower a sportsman drag racer, a U.S. Olympic athlete, or an adult film star? Walt Thrower. Now, this is audio. I wish you could see the, the look on Wes's face when I threw that out there. I didn't, uh, I didn't prompt this at all. <laughs> for for the, the sake of wanting to use this as my answer, I'm going to go with adult film star. <laughs> I love it. But that that's disrespectful to Walt. Walt, Walt Thrower is a <laughs> drag racer. He races uh, – I, I actually just pulled it up. He's a, he's a footbrake racer at Collot Motorsports Park. So. That we went down that road last week. I wanted to bring yeah. that. I figured I figured the listeners would get a good laugh. So <laughs> back to the case. The, the, well, I just thought you know Walt Thrower. It's I, hard telling what you're throwing. I mean, hey, it, it's possible. Listen, I, my apologies, I, Walt. I picked Walt <laughs> for a reason. I thought you might go yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so now the challenges that you face, and I can't even begin to imagine. Like uh, you know, because you been there before like i've jed and i jed more so than me wick we've promoted events on a on a small level um i can't imagine the the multifaceted nature of what you go through well, now i mean you're less than a month removed from uh the the world door slammer nationals in orlando i guess uh, it's different obviously because from say a, a big dollar bracket race promotion to something like you're putting on here and i guess at least in my mind this might just be my assumption you can tell me if it's it's false like the revenue model for something like what you're doing is more spectator driven more sponsorship driven than participant driven which is kind of the model that the that say a big dollar bracket race goes back to but i think that we could learn significantly from the success that you've had so let's go down that road just for an instant. Like uh, when I had Bill Bader on several years ago, he the term that he used, and I've used it so many times since, is as a as a race promoter, as a track owner, is to serve multiple masters, right? In in one yes, event. So I guess what do you think about? We can take this down each road. Like I'm thinking the racers, the spectators, the sponsors. You could probably you can divvy it up more into to track employees things like that but what do you think about in terms of providing value to your racers coming into an event like this hey it's a fantastic question and it's a it's an awesome conversation to have because it's something that i think it took me a while to truly appreciate how important serving all those masters is correct but like identifying what is a difference maker for each one of those masters, you know? And sometimes I ran into this when I started uh, a racing apparel business, like many, many moons ago, when I first started the magazine, I uh, thought, oh, I'm gonna, you know, the magazine's going well, and I was a complete idiot because this was literally like a year in. Um, I thought, I'm gonna start an apparel company, and I made this mistake of making apparel, shirts, all this merchandise, 
uh, reflect what I want, what I wanted, what, what I thought people wanted. Um, and I never, and I've still got all the stuff, you know what I mean? I, I've got 5,000 shirts in crates out back because what I liked wasn't necessarily what everyone else wanted. Our industry had been trained and I don't say this like, um, I hope no one takes offense, but like the, the standard race car t-shirt is fireworks and flames and skulls and burnouts and whatever else. And I thought, man, in our industry, we need some clean stuff, small logo placement. And, and I make all this apparel and none of it's sold because that's not what the industry wanted. What the industry wanted were those loud in your face race fan centric type of, of pieces of merchandise. And I think I've kind of unknowingly I've had that experience in the back of my head now for 15 years. And you just start slowly reminded like, Hey man, I got to make sure that I'm not building this for me. I'm building this for them. Right. And so I found that every one of those, those classifications of people that are involved in these events, you know, racers are obviously kind of what you, what comes to mind first. There's a, a certain list, a certain set of boxes that you need to tick for them. Then you have your sponsors and there's a certain set of boxes you have to tick for them. Uh, your, uh, your fan base, obviously, and the list goes on and on. And in this COVID world, there's also like that you have to tick, like, what are the local guidelines? What are the state guidelines? What are the whatever? And so learning what, what does it for people? Cause everyone's different. Right. And I think that I found that you have to, when you go into these events, you have to try to set out to tick as many of those boxes as possible. And I'll start with like racers. One of the things that I learned comparing and contrasting our event in Orlando, the World War Slammer Nationals, to the World Series of Pro Mod in Denver, Colorado, there was a couple of things. Geography matters, right? It was such a, such a tough sell to convince racers that had never raced at significant altitude at crazy elevation like exists at Thunder Mountain, Vandermeer Speedway in Denver, Colorado, like 10,000 feet. Most of these guys have, have zero experience doing that. So I found that I can pay all the money I want. I can charge no entry fee. I can kiss all the butt I want and create all the, create all the hoopla and all the circus and all the pageantry that I've kind of become known for. I can do all that, but it's still not enough right? Because it just, it's not ticking that geography box. It's too, that's a tough one, right? Because I mean, think about this, and this is kind of a little bit of inside baseball, but my model for the World, World Series of Pro Mod was 100000 to win, no entry fee, right? I mean, that's crazy, if you, especially if you compare it to like bracket racing, big money bracket racing. You know, to race for that kind of money, typically you're looking at a couple thousand dollar entry fee at least, right? So, here I am for three years beating my head against the wall, trying to draw racers to, to Denver for this event, doing everything I think I can. And I just couldn't consistently get people to come. Uh, every year the participation went down because only one guy is going to win, right? That's the thing you have to remember that only one guy is going to get that hundred grand. And even if they split in the semis or whatever, it's still a small portion of the people that are going to be significantly rewarded for participating. So when I looked to Orlando, I thought about, okay, geography, sea level, Florida, Southeast, I'm ticking some boxes, right? And then I start thinking about what are the other things these racers are looking to accomplish, knowing that only one of them are going to win? Well, they need to test. They need to test in conditions that they're going to race in a lot, right? Um, it's early in the year. Instead of my event in Denver was in August, this event's in early March, right? So I just, I really tried to laser in on how can I provide, and this is a little bit 
business buzzwordy, but just how can you provide value? How can I provide value? And just, I'm using these two races as these examples because they're so stark and they're such, it's so interesting, at least to me, like all the different things that, that were at play that, that, that drive people's decision-making process. So despite putting up a hundred thousand to win, and despite there being no entry fee and all these other things, unfortunately or fortunately, and I, this is just kind of the cold hard truth that even I've had to accept, I just couldn't provide enough value to the ProMod racer specifically to, to continue to spend the money to go that far west, change their setups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when I looked to do, a diff, do another event, one of the things that I really labored on was trying to provide as much value to these guys as I possibly can. And it's interesting, the last year of the World Series of ProMod, we had 11 cars show up to race for 100,000 bucks, man. And I'm very proud of it because I learned, there's one thing that I think all promoters need to be reminded of is that it takes two cars to have a drag race. That's it, it's all you need. And we all get wrapped up in looking at their car count and their car count, their car count. Well, I mean, in 2019, we proved that you can have one hell of a drag race even if you only have 11 cars. We had a barn burner, very successful event, uh, and I'm very proud of it. But I compare that to the first annual, the first ever World Door Slammer Nationals. I paid half that much, 50,000, and had 34 cars. I mean, we were beating these people off with a stick. We didn't have room to park them. And I just think that you can't help but at least acknowledge that those other factors move the needle. People know everybody goes with the intention of winning, but we all know that one guy's going to win. So I need to make this event. People are going to get to test. They're going to get to shake their car down for the beginning of the season. The air and the conditions are going to be phenomenal. The track's going to be phenomenal that time of year. Everyone's going to set their career best. Um, it, it just, it tons of value and you have to, and I don't mean to make this such a long answer, but that same scenario, Luke exists for your sponsors and for your fans. Um, some of the things that I've found with sponsors to just go down that, that path is that, uh, people are looking for turnkey. I know it's thrown around a lot, but turnkey investments, turnkey programs, what I've seen with a lot of different sanctions and series, and I don't mean to, uh, beat on them or anything like that because most all of them have had success to some degree some more so than others but one of the things that i've heard just by kind of conducting an ongoing needs analysis like for the last 15 years just asking questions paying attention um you know keeping my ears and eyes open at these events you hear people say like well i wrote a check to be the sponsor of this deal but then I had to spend another 15 grand on signage and banners and catering. And it's just people get nickeled and dimed to death because they think they stroke that check to whatever sanction series, organization, whatever. And then there's like a whole series of invoices that follow that for all the stuff required to make that investment make sense. So what we've really tried to do as Drag Illustrated moved into the event production business was make sure that when we partner with someone like SeaTech, CTEC strokes us a check. We obviously work in very close conjunction on all the planning and whatnot, but we take that investment and we make sure that they're going to get everything that I believe they need to, to see significant ROI, you know, significant, significant return on that investment. And everybody, you know, that's another thing that everybody's measuring stick is different on that type of thing. Uh, but I want the guys from SeaTech to know like, hey, we sponsored the World Door Slammer Nationals um, and it's taken care of. All we got to do is get there. 
they're going to show up and there's going to be CTEC signs everywhere. There's going to be CTEC. You, you know what I mean? Like we, we take care of that for them. We produce radio commercials. We produce video commercials. We produce, we do all that for them because CTEC's a bad example because that's such a well-ran and well-oiled machine. They have a ton of experience with big events. They have a ton of experience just in being successful, right? But a lot of the companies that exist in our industry, a lot of the, the companies that you and I deal with on the daily, they don't have a marketing department. They don't have an in-house graphic designer. They don't know who to call for banners. They don't know who to get a, where to get a pop-up tent. They don't know the first thing about catering or you know, all these things that they don't have experience with. And I think that's some of our secret sauce is that we're willing and able to just make it painless. How can we make this painless for them? I love the just kind of going back to the idea that you don't assume to know what any of these quote-unquote masters need like you go out and find out and ask them and it's an iterative very iterative process as you go you mentioned specifically like some of the things that you're doing with sponsors to make that a turnkey package that's based on their points of pain right and some of the things that you've done uh, in kind of checking those boxes with this race in Orlando be it the location the the time on the calendar I'm curious uh, one of the other masters that we talk about is is spectators can you think of an example of whether it's it's feedback or just general knowledge because I feel like your finger is very much on the pulse of that crowd it, perhaps things that you've gone that have gone into planning your events or that have gone that changes that you have made to events over the years to be more appealing to that fan base great question again Luke I think this is a little bit of an ongoing thing for me uh, I, I feel like I'm learning when I don't that's a, such a moving target, right? And I think that race fans, uh, and this is where I can get myself in trouble, right? Because I tend, I have found that I, I, one of the things that I've done over the course of my life in racing is I did, I'm very blessed to have grown up in racing. Like you said that I've been around racing my whole life. I mean, you're exactly right. I was in my mother's womb in my father's enclosed car trailer two days before I was born, right? At Eddyville Raceway Park in Iowa. So this is all I've ever done. And I've tried to be a student of the game and pay attention to what works and what doesn't and, and the things that seem to, to move the needle for people. What I've also done, especially as I've, you know, turned drag racing into my career is I've invested in going to events that aren't drag races. Like I've, uh, I've made, I've been to all sorts of different Red Bull produced events. I think they're some of the best. I've been to every imaginable Supercross, Monster Jam, IndyCar, um, uh, what else? PBR are some of the best ran events. Professional bull riding events are some of the best produced events maybe in the world. Um, and I've really tried to invest in going and just learning and seeing how things are done and how other people do things. The UFC, I've been to multiple boxing matches and UFC fights just to see how they do it. And I think that it's a tough one. I think you have to make it affordable. I think that you have to resist the urge to charge a, sometimes I think we struggle, like as bad as we want to be the NFL and bad as we want to be major league baseball and bad as we want to be some of these other things, we're not there yet. It's unfortunate. And that's, but that's a whole other conversation, but you do have to kind of look at where we're at as a sport, what people are willing to spend and, and how can we make this a very inviting thing? I think um, some of the feedback that I hear from fans uh, at NHRA races or is, there, 
I think that drag racing is lacking by and large electricity. Like it, it happens and it can happen, but a certain amount of that is speaking it into existence. I mean, I've been calling the Orlando race, the World Door Slammer Nationals, the best race ever. I've been calling it the biggest drag race ever. Um, take some balls to do that. And, and people get mad at me and I hear a little bit about it, but you have to do that. Like, if I don't say that, no one else is going to say that. I mean, my buddy Luke might, and I appreciate it. And there's some handful of people that maybe believe it. Um, but you have to, you have to, you have to, that is a created thing, right? I mean, you have to go out and be willing to say that this is the best race ever. This is the best cars, the best drivers, the best teams, the best time of year, the best racing surface. It's the best race ever. And I think some of those things, just when you repeat them ad nausea, people start to believe it, right? And that's one of the things that I think drag race, especially when I look at, and this isn't bagging on NHRA, but it's just so rinse and repeat rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And part of that is just, they've got to do it 24 times a year. I couldn't do it. And I tip my cap to the NHRA every chance I get, because I know for a fact that like, not only do I, I don't know that I can do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. You know, what they do is oftentimes a very thankless uphill battle. And I appreciate it. But what I've tried to do is make our event unique in sight, sound, feel there's a different atmosphere that I think kind of just comes when those big purses, they make things feel like a big deal. They ratchet up the intensity. I can't begin to, I truly believe the first round of the World Door Slammer Nationals in 2020 was as exciting or more exciting than the final round of any other drag race I've ever been to. Because I mean, and it, there was just so much anticipation. There was so much... It's hard. I mean, I got chills, literally. I'm covered in chills. And it's, but it was truly electric. And honestly, Luke, I think I might be talking out of my ass to tell you that I know how to do that or that there's a, there's a tried and true formula. Um, but sometimes it's just the right ingredients, the, the right amount of money, the right people, the right place, um, and just knowing those things. Because drag racing, another thing that I've learned is heads up drag racing, door slammer drag racing specifically, it plays well on at the Saturday night drag strip. You know what I mean? Like I, I think that it would be very difficult for me to, to do this event like at Charlotte or one of the super tracks as cool as those places are. And they're so spectacular and over the top. I don't know that my R race really plays that well there. I think you almost need nitro. You need header flames. You need something louder or whatever. Um, so I think that it, a lot of different things like looking at your venue, looking at the time of year, um, ticket prices, setting the mood. I mean, I think we're probably one of the only people in all of drag racing that has a DJ. I mean, we have a house DJ. Um, I bring, you know, we bring a DJ, Jason Logan, to our events. We set him up at the base of the tower. Um, and you want to talk about something that changes the mood. Instead of hearing the of a tire dragger all day, you know, you're hearing like top 40 hits and people are, I mean, I'll never forget like Ricky Smith was up on the starting line checking the track out, which is a very common thing to see Ricky Smith do, right? Up there with his temp gun, looking around, stepping around. At, in Orlando last year, he was up there shucking and jiving. He was dancing because, you know, and it's just little silly things that are not super complicated um, add a lot to it. One of the things that I think is important for fans is to make an event look like a big deal. 
I've spent a lot of money and invested heavily in flags and signage and barrier covers. I mean, you're not going to come to my, one of my races and see a bicycle rack just bare, right? That's going to be branded. I look around and I go, okay, how can I, where can I make this thing look and feel different than another race? And, and sometimes if you tell people it's a big deal and it looks like a big deal, by God, it'll be a big deal. Right. And that's, and I know it sounds kind of simple or whatever, but I really think that's part of it. Fans, it's a nuanced thing and I'm learning. Um, I think that you've got to, it's another thing where you got to provide a lot of value. Um, what can you do? Is it that music? Are you going to have a party on Friday night? Are you going to, what can you do? Are you going to have some VIP sections down on the starting line? And, um, what can you do to just get people excited and to feel like they're genuinely part of something? It's part, I want my events to feel, and I had this little woman, I actually don't know who she is or where she fits in to the, anything, but she walked up to me in the winter circle last year, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. I wish I would have gotten her name. Um, I think I have it on video somewhere, but anyways, uh, this is one of the few times that having a camera follow you around works out. Um, but this little lady came up to me, Luke, and she said, uh, I want you to know that I'll never forget being here. And I, I'm, I will, that something happened here today. Something happened. And I said, yeah, thank you very much. I think so too. And she was, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm going to tell people about this. Like, I'm going to tell people that I was here for this. And I, and again, I get goosebumps and you can halfway, you know, I halfway get emotional talking about it, but that's, it's a whole lot of things, Luke, but like, that's what you're going for. That's the, that's the target is just creating something that is a memorable experience. 100%. And from the feedback that I saw, like I said, I'm a little bit removed from that world. Like it's never a hundred percent, but it just felt like that was the sentiment among racers, among manufacturers that were involved, among spectators, like all the way down the line. I'm curious if we dig a little bit deeper on the on the spectator piece, how much in your mind has that changed since you started doing this? And what comes to mind for me, I feel like the the heads up crowd was a little bit quicker to jump on this than the big dollar bracket crowd, but it's certainly made a significant impact and a growing impact is the the live streaming of these events. Obviously, from I would assume at least from a revenue standpoint, you're focused more on in-person butts in the seats but there is a presentation element to the live feed like there's an art to that too right absolutely and that's something that i think we're i anticipate us getting better at i think that even the people that are involved in live streaming are learning it's still i believe in its infancy uh broadcast tv has been around like my whole life um and well beyond then, right? So I think that we're so early in that process that everybody collectively is still learning. It's exciting because that means there's opportunity. That means there's fertile soil. That means there's, you know, uh, maybe some opportunities still to do things better than somebody else. Uh, it's exciting. I will tell you that we've partnered with Flow Racing in 2021. Uh, they were in the process of buying out Speed Video last year, which is who uh, streamed our race in 2020. It's an interesting thing, Luke, and I've got mixed emotions on it. Part of me feels that like we should be investing in the technology that would allow us to build some sort of geofence, you know, 100 miles around Orlando and no one, you know, block any IP address that's coming from within a 100 mile radius, black it out for the locals. Um, but I don't, 
I don't know that that's the answer either. It's such a, it's a tough thing. It really is. I know that one of the things that really resonates with my sponsors is they like all those additional eyeballs. I mean, it's, it's a, I think it goes without saying not everybody's going to come, right? I mean, it's too far for some people. It's obviously COVID and everything that's going on in our world right now. People aren't as, I mean, this is probably the least travel friendly time of my life. And so I don't, so I think it's a service you have to provide. And I know our sponsors really gravitate to that and they're, they get excited about it. They get excited about the, the impressions. They get excited about just the reach. Uh, and I think it makes the events feel bigger than maybe they are. I've, I've often wondered if, like, what would Donald Long's races like Lights Out and No Mercy and those events, what would they be without that live stream and without him being the one of the first guys on the scene charging – doing a pay-per-view, um, you know, it, it, there was just a lot of things that I wonder, like, man, I think those things really served him well. Those events, it made those events look way bigger than maybe they actually were. I mean, you see all those people piled on the starting line and these cars flipping over, and it, it serves as, we spoke about this off the air, it's like this on, it's a marketing tool, right? I mean, it, it's something that kind of lives on forever. People watch it, you get all these clips from it. So it has tremendous value, but I do think it's a tough thing because, I know that I run into this right now. I'm a big mixed martial art. I'm not as much anymore as I was when I was a little younger. But um, the best seat in the house for a, a UFC fight is your living room. I've paid big money to, to go sit close to the cage. And I've paid, you know, I've done that. And I hate to sit. But if you really want to watch the fight, the best place to do it is at home, you know. However, you cannot even get close to the electricity and the feel of being there for a prize fight. Two dudes are about to fight out here, right? And it's, so it's this big balancing act, Luke, of, of how, and I think NFL's dealing with this, NASCAR's dealing with it, everybody's dealing with it. How can you make your live event experience so good that you'll get up off the couch and you'll head to the racetrack? And that's something that I think every single one of us that are in this game, in this business, are tasked with what are those little things you're going to do or i mean and sometimes it's silly stuff you're going to hand them a lanyard you know you're going to put something around the neck their neck you're going to give them something you're going to let them stand somewhere special um i don't know there's a whole lot of different ways to do it but i do think that that's kind of the great challenge of event promotion in 2021 and for the foreseeable future is how do you make your event your live event experience far and away surpass whatever experience people can have at home. It's a challenge, man. And our model, as you said, is very much spectator centric. I mean, we've got to sell tickets. We, we have to sell tickets to this event to make it work financially. And that's the, that's the tip of the spear for us. I mean, we're out selling sponsorships and we're doing these other things. And, but the bulk of our effort goes into making sure that there's a big crowd there. So it's a, uh, it's an interesting thing, man. I don't know if that answered that question at all, but yeah, absolutely. I've this this might be a difficult question to answer, and I don't know if you've ever really thought about it in these terms. But speaking specifically to these three masters, for lack of a better word, your your racers, your spectators, and your event sponsors, marketing partners, uh, how do you or like are they? equal priority do you prioritize one over another like if if you have a hundred percent of your output to to give out like is it 33 33 33 it's a fantastic one 
honestly, Luke, I mean, I think, man, I think you better be shooting for something around that. I mean, I really do. I mean, I think that, you know, I find myself like, uh, if I'm on the starting line of the World Door Slammer Nationals and it's five o'clock on Saturday and I get a radio, my radio rings um, and I've got a fan complaining about the bathroom, um, a racer issue and a sponsor issue, which one am I going to take care of first? You know, um, I'm going to probably take care of my sponsor. You know what I mean? Like I just, I think just being honest, I mean, it, I mean, obviously it depends, you know what I mean? But like if my phone rings and it's someone from SeaTac or it's someone from JEGS, um, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do all we can to make those folks happy. Uh, however, I'm a racer centric guy. Um, and I think that I want racers to know that I care about them and that they are a very high priority for us because I recognize that I can't sell a sponsorship. Um, I can't put on a show that's going to draw fans to complain about the bathroom without my racers. And I struggle with this all the time because I fall in love so fast that like, you know, I want them all to win. I want them all to qualify number one. I want them all to have their best weekend ever. And so I struggle with that because I kind of, I wear whatever success or struggle or failure that all these guys have. Um, I kind of wear them all simultaneously. I, I feel for them. I hate it. They tear up their car and it crushes me. Uh, right. But I also recognize that racers, uh, and I, I mean, I think you'll respect this. And I, I say this tongue in cheek. I hope no one takes offense, but it's like, you could take the most stable, sane, level-headed dude in the world, rolling through the gate of, the ra of a racetrack, sign his name on a tech card, and more often than not, he becomes a blithering idiot. And, it, it, and, it's, it, and it's not because he's stupid per se, but you, we all are bad about this. Like, it's our world. We can't hardly see beyond the, the sides of our pit space or sure. you know, our car, beyond the windshield of our car. And I recognize that racers need someone removed to hold things together, right? Because I've seen it time and time again. You, you are, a, I think, an exception to the rule. I think Peter Biondo, Kyle uh, Seipel, and the, the Spring Fling guys, Britt Cummings come to mind. There are plenty of racers who are able to, to do both, right? To uh, see beyond their own racing endeavors for the greater good of the group or whatever. But I've also seen plenty of racers that kind of turn into promoters and get themselves in trouble really quick because they're doing it how they want it for the racers or how they want it for themselves, uh, for themselves. I mean, and if it were, you know, I've found that, uh, this is, I think this is a good example or, uh, I've had people tell me like, Oh man, I'm not going to call my guys back to the lanes. I don't want to rush them. I, you know, I want to give them plenty of time, you know, and I'm going, screw that. We got people in the stands, get their asses back in the lanes. And, and you've got to be able to do those both. Like you've got to be able to have respect and compassion for whatever issues those guys might be facing, uh, of which there are many, right? Um, and you also just simply appreciate their involvement. But at the same time, somebody's got to be the principal, right? And someone has to know what's the best for everybody. And I've tried to remind some of these promoters that I've seen kind of go down that path of just constantly caving to the racers. I don't know about you, but some of the most memorable, best times I've ever had at the racetrack were, was, were when a thrash or a hustle moment was involved. 
That's what these guys live for. Certainly the right? most memorable, right? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that we. I don't want to go sit around. I want to go race. I want to go work on stuff. I want to, right? I mean, and don't get me wrong. We don't want to be thrashing, you know, all day, all night. But I think that you got to create that. It doesn't always happen organically. You've got to create that. You've got to press these guys. You've got to push them them and if everything you do as a promoter is done with like well i don't want to make any of my precious racers uncomfortable or unhappy i don't know that that's a recipe for success someone's got to push them someone's got to push them out of their comfort zone someone's got to keep things moving um because if we let everybody just kind of do what suits them best i mean we may never get the final run Truth. No, and then it can be a, a fine line too to do that in a way that is truly fair to all the racers and doesn't. You, I guess you, it's hard to avoid the appearance of favoritism, but yeah. Um, the reason I asked that, Wes, is uh, and tried to put it in those terms of you know how do, how do you allocate priority, so to speak, is because I think broadly speaking, when we take this into the the big dollar bracket racing spectrum, I would say that the average bracket race promoter is at least 95% racer, um, you know, maybe uh, 4% sponsors and maybe 1% spectator. And I, I do, I realize that, that what you're selling is more palatable, you know, to the, the average consumer than say a, a bracket race of any form. But I do think, I've always thought that uh, there is area, there is significant opportunity there even for the typical bracket race, both in terms of spectator and, and certainly untapped opportunity in terms of sponsorship. Like in our world, Pete and Kyle probably do the best job as far as delivering to, to manufacturers and really focusing on that end of it, delivering to manufacturers and increasing the quality of the race for the racers as part of it. You know, most of, at least my impression is most of what they bring in is product wise that ultimately goes back to the, to the, to the racer. But even them, like I would say that, uh, and we could have Peter on to, to pinpoint it, but if I were to guess, I'd say they're like 90% focused on the racer, maybe 8 9% focused on the sponsor and 1% on the spectator. In your mind, like to what extent or specifically how do some of the things that you guys do within, say, the World Door Slammer Nationals apply to this world of bracket racing like if you were to put on a big dollar bracket race i'm sure that you would given your experience you would approach it a little bit differently than anyone that's currently in that space what are what would be some of those things that you would focus on that maybe we don't necessarily think about or how do we take advantage of those well i think one of the things that you hit on right away in that 95 percent that that we're that you're talking about unfortunately or sometimes this is a good thing i i think i look at bracket racers like and that segment of our industry as a lot of guys that have been mistreated, right. And have been treated as second class citizens and have, it's so hard to compare that experience because what Pete guys like Peter and Kyle and Brit and these other, you know, yourself, everybody, SFG, everybody putting on these big money bracket races, right. They're really doing, it almost feels, I know charitable is not the right word, but it, it it feels like it's rooted in righteousness. Like these people deserve to race for more. They deserve better treatment. They have parked in the grass forever. They've ran in the middle of the night or at 6 a.m. forever. So I guess I don't ever want to fault any. I mean, my point is that I don't want to ever fault any of those people, any of those promoters, because man, 
No wonder they're so racer centric. No wonder those things are so important to them because they've never been afforded those things before, right? They've never, some of the simple things that like a pro stock racer just assumes is going to happen, right? Uh, or a pro mod racer assumes is going to happen, um, has never happened for your average super comp guy or, or super gas guy, right? Um, they've always had to pay for everything. They've always had to pay list for everything. They've always had to, you know, get their, their class canceled or their session pushed back, right? So the nitro cars can run on time. So I'm not at all surprised that bracket, big money bracket race promoters are so racer centric. It doesn't surprise me one bit and I actually encourage it. Uh, but I, but I do think that, uh, some of, and I see it with Kyle's event, Kyle and Peter's events, like, you know, the Vegas show girls and the trophies and the limo, right? I mean, they do a great job. I think that they're some of the best. I think you're a, you do a great job. I mean, you talk about little events. Like, uh, I, I don't look at your events as little. Like the the door slammer shootout that you put on. Um, like, I think about all the little things that you do: wheelie contest, burnout contest, ice cream at the base of the tower. All these things that I know you you do that add to that experience. But those are those are racer centric things, right? You're trying to take care of these people, give them a little treatment that they've not um, gotten elsewhere. Uh, I actually find myself sometimes jealous as a promoter of the bracket racing scene because unfortunately we're not in a position or the industry is not in a position or I don't know how it would totally work. I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I wish our deal was more participant driven. I really actually do. I wish it, I wish we had more of a focus or more of an even split or whatever ever uh with the back gate versus the front gate and sponsors and so on i i wish that there was a little bit more opportunity there just to mitigate risk i mean right i mean you're able to kind of mitigate some of your risk by selling it tech cards right and you're you can get close to zero but when you're paying out 360 375 thousand dollars in you know charging 500 bucks or a thousand dollars to enter and you're only going to get 16 or 20 cards like it's really hard to get to zero you know i mean you've got to sell tickets you've got to sell sponsorships it's a challenge um when i think about what i would do different uh i think i would and this is something that i've said to the p the multiple people i think i would have what i think bracket racing lacks a little bit just as a whole is there's not enough pride amongst the community there's not enough I don't know that you guys, and I don't, I don't know if that's a great way to say it, but I don't think that group yourself, you guys are badasses. I mean, you guys are racing for millions of dollars. No one else in our sport's doing that. But you're also pretty nonchalant about it. You, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think, uh, it's kind of like me saying that Orlando's the best drag race ever. I mean, I feel like someone needs to be saying that stuff about the sprinkling millions somebody needs to be saying that stuff about these guaranteed half million races or whatever like uh that's incredible right and i just don't know that the group really is as proud of what they've done and how much they've changed the whole racing economy as they should be like that's a it's insane and i think it kind of starts at the top um, and I've said this to like my PDRA brothers and sisters, the people at the Professional Drag Racers Association. I think that they've got a little bit of a, I don't know, like little brother kind of syndrome where they just, they portray themselves and oftentimes act as like a lesser than these other sanctions and series. 
Well, man, I can, I'm here to tell you the PDRA, despite being a somewhat regional series out on the East Coast, it's chock full of killers. I mean, everybody there could be successful wherever they chose to go race, right? But it's, it's an internal battle. I mean, I struggle with it myself. You know, uh, you know me fairly well, but I really think that that's, if I could scream and yell at all the bracket racing promoters, I would be like, y'all need to be screaming and yelling. Y'all, you guys need to be way more proud, way more boastful, way more arrogant, way more everything because you changed the game. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, it was not that long ago that like a bracket, every bracket race on the planet paid 1500 bucks. You know what I mean? Or a 3000 to win race was a big deal. I remember putting up 3000 to win in Eddyville, Iowa, when I was the general manager there in 2005. And we had like 300 cars show up. It was like the second coming of Christ. I mean, you couldn't even get someone to, to look your way at a flyer that says three grand now, right? I mean, a bracket race may as well not exist if it doesn't pay $10,000. And I just think that the, the, the whole community needs to be a little prouder about that. And I think that, that, that kind of dynamic change would draw some interest. It would get some interest from sponsors. It would, I mean, people always say that, that um, bracket racing is not like a spectator thing. It's a, a participant driven deal. And I don't maybe you'll never be able to, to change that. But I'm telling you, man, poker is on TV. That's always right? what I, mean, I go back to, yes. That's poker's on television. Um, these guys are throwing bean bags on TV, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> and I think about, right, am I wrong? I'm, I don't think I am. I mean, I look at what's going on and I go, shoot, what these guys are doing and the precision and the skill and the, the news of all this, it's way more interesting than anybody gives it credit for. It's way more exciting. Um, I like all the, I love the gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I just, I don't know. I think that there's a lot more of a story to tell there. Uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe I just answered, like kind of figured it out. Like I think the story is not being effectively told. I think that that whole world is so laser focused on reaction times and packages um, and these things that a lot of people don't understand, mm-hmm. right? But if we could change, make the story more poker-esque, more high risk, high reward, the stakes are so high there. I just think that there's a great story to be told and it's not effectively being told. Agree a hundred percent. And I think <clears throat> the race that stands out to me that began to transcend into that was uh, Britain Galen's million. They had Clay Milliken involved doing all the live feed stuff, and the focus was way more on, or as much on that physical racing as it was the human interest side. And like, look at this guy that's down to 16 cars and the money that they're talking about, or how did they get here? Like, I feel like that's been missing for a long time to generate interest outside of the group, so to speak. Agreed. I mean, and like, why not get Clay in a car? Like, I, I would argue that and I've said this about the NHRA, like if I ran the NHRA, like I think that I would be really working hard to get to steal or borrow or harness or whatever word you want to use someone else's fame and, and following. Like what could we do to get Ken Block, the, the Jim Connor monster energy drink rally cross guy, what he's got 20 million followers on social media. What can we do to get him in a top fuel car for a weekend? I know he'd drive it. Travis Pastrana comes to mind, right? Uh, all these superstars from X games, because that stuff, there's some crossover opportunity. I don't think we should go get Patrick Mahomes to try to race a pro mod or something, because that's too far, right? But if, 
if all these people are watching rallycross racing, I, I can give me a shot and I'll turn them into drag racing fans. Right. I mean, give me a shot at it. And I, I look at, I think Britt and, and uh, the team there, Galen, they might be wise to get Ron Caps, put, put Ron Caps in somebody's car, put Clay Milliken in some, just get some credibility. And I, credibility is not a great word because it could be taken like offensively, but I'm just saying get some of that star power from other sections of the world and let those guys go lose in the first round the, to Hunter or to, to – because they yeah. will. <laughs> right. The, no. the, the, I don't problems, probably not really worried. Like the, the issue that I see to the extent that there is an issue in being so racer centric, because to your point, like that is absolutely the foundation that, that these promoters are built on. And rightfully so in a lot of cases, you know, it, it should be a vast majority of the, of the energy back to, you know, providing for the racers, providing value for the racers. My, my pushback to that is <clears throat> that I feel like, in doing that, it almost inevitably creates more of a mindset of scarcity amongst promoters. Like, hey, we're all competing for the same racers. When in reality, I, I think you're better suited to speak for this in the type of promotion that you do. Like, I feel like if the um, SFG million is a huge success, that's a good thing for Peter and Kyle too. That's a good thing for Brit too. Like the sport is growing and, and everything can just begin to snowball. Like I really think it has over the course of the last decade. Um, but I think looking at, at it through strictly the racer lens is saying, oh, we're all competing for the same racers. You know what I mean? I, I, I feel like that mindset of abundance uh, should take a little bit more precedence because I think as, a, as the sport grows, everybody benefits. I, I honestly that is you're a hundred percent right Luke I don't even know how to uh, say that any better than you said it that's something that I uh, admittedly preach often but struggle with myself from time to time um, I literally had a conversation with a sponsor like I don't I won't mention them because it would probably embarrass them but like uh, earlier this week about a an abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset type of thing I have a guy that's one of our sponsors and a company he competes with is also a sponsor and it was and i'm saying like man there's more than enough to go around there's more than enough customers there's more than enough people to buy four link kits and anti-roll bars or whatever you're selling there's more than enough to go around and it's but it's tough right because he's going well, i don't want that guy involved if we're going to be involved they got to not be involved and i try to tell people like man walk around with your chest puffed out a little bit right like have a little bit of belief like they're not going to if they sell like whatever to somebody, it, it, you're not going out of business. You know what I mean? Like there's, there is enough to go around, but that's something that I think everybody struggles with. It's uh, obviously for as long as we've been doing the magazine, 15 years now, we just put out our 164th issue. One of there's, there's been a handful of things that existed on day one that still exists now, like just a reoccurring theme. And it's that exact thing of like promoters, this competition amongst promoters. If I, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone tell me that they just wish everybody could get on the same page or they just wish everybody could, you know, work together or whatever. I mean, I'd have a billion dollars. I mean, it's literally hardly a day goes by that I don't see a Facebook post that's kind of sideways or salty towards somebody that put their race. I mean, it's, it's tough. There's 52 weeks in a year, right? So there's only so many days. There's only so many days of warm weather. There's only so many tracks. So there's going to be some overlap and, and that stinks. I mean, actually, 
I was genuinely hard. I haven't talked about this a lot, but our event last year due to some schedule constraints was right on top of the NMCA's season opener in Bradenton. Uh, I felt horrible about it for a lot of reasons. You know, I mean, A, Victor Alvarez and the guys at Bradenton are great people. It's a very successful track. Um, I obviously have a, I, I'm a big fan of the NMCA, Steve Wolcott, Raleigh Miller. They run a tight ship and it, and I know they were upset. I mean, and rightfully so that that was their weekend. Um, I was between a rock and a hard place. There's only so many weekends. I had, I had to, I had to choose. I had to, I had to move forward. And uh, fortunately we've all, everybody, but what's interesting about it is everybody survived. Like their race happened. Our race happened. Um, they're happy. We're happy. Uh, and it was just, sometimes you need those little reminders that like, Hey, this stuff, we can all be successful together. And I don't know, to be honest, how we can program. I had a guy tell me one time that racers eat their young. And it's interesting because I think there's some truth to that. And it really extends like none of us want any new people, right? We don't want any new guys in the game. We don't want anybody else to compete with. And it's, it's that whatever, if that's the scarcity mindset, it's something that's kind of hardwired in racers, it seems like. And maybe it's just we're that fierce of competitors, we can't turn it off. I don't know. But I agree with you. I mean, whenever I see a big race happening or another big thing pop up, I mean, another Bradenton provides another example with their U.S. Street Nationals. A couple of weeks ago, they had like 40 pro mods. I mean, they had a huge show, very successful. And, and I'll be honest, I'm going, Ugh. You know, you know what I mean? I, I had a, there's a millisecond of that. Uh, but I'm actually going like, dude, this is great for the industry because that there, that's cars being built, transmissions being sold, torque converters being sold, tires being sold, spark plugs being chewed up. Um, it, it, those it's, we need them. We need as many successful events as we can. And I think that, uh, I'm not doing a great job of, of answering that question or, or, I don't know. It wasn't really, I guess, a question, but it's, it's hard to, you're exactly right. And I, I think that I just, maybe it's just a matter of reminding people that there's enough going around and just trying to slowly over the course of time, just change the thinking. It's not going to happen overnight, but just constantly be preaching that uh, because I truly believe that's correct. It, one of the things that our industry needs uh, perhaps more so than anything else is successful promoters. I don't think a successful promoter is a bad guy in a hurry. Have you noticed that? Like if there's <laughs> yes. a guy that's making some money, putting on drag races, that guy's a no good SOB, mm -hmm. just like that. And that's a real problem. I mean, you talk about, you know, trying to change the, 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 the whatever, the mindset or the, the belief system that exists in our group is that I want Donald Long to make a billion dollars. I want you to make a bunch of money. I want Kyle and Peter to make a bunch of money. I want Britain Slate to make a bunch of money because if they're not, why are they going to do it? How, why are they going to invest in making it better? Why are they going to, what's going to drive them to, to raise the purse? What's going to drive them to, to improve the event, however, provide more value? And how are they going to do it if they don't have any money, right? So I think that as a, an entire industry, if we could just wrap our arms and our heads around these race promoters and realize the service that they provide is invaluable. I mean, obviously the tracks are important, but like events like the World Door Slammer Nationals, events like the Spring Fling Million, I'm not trying to take anything away from the, the weekly bracket programs and the smaller events that exist in our industry, but these are the events that inspire action, right? Like there's a guy sitting around going, I want to win the million. 
right? And he's maybe he's a junior dragster racer and he's saving his pennies or whatever to, to buy a super comp car or buy a rear engine dragster. We have to have these events and we have to have them be successful because I think that they're the needle movers. They're the action. They create, it's that ask, serve that aspirational culture of that's what I want to do someday. And if all those events go away or all those guys are barely making ends meet or breaking even, it's going to be tough to keep having them. So a little bit of a wide ranging answer to that, but man, you hit the nail on the head there. One more kind of element of this that I want to double click on before we get out of here, Wes. I feel like when we talk about this specifically, hey, you know, like how much could we benefit within, you know, our little niche of big dollar bracket racing from taking a little bit of that focus off the racers and onto the spectator or, or onto the sponsor. I feel like a lot of the racers listening to this are, are going to cringe at that a little bit. Like, no, I, I like, you know, everything catered to me. And I, that's part of the reason that I want to go. My pushback on that would be this. Like, I, if the stands are packed and there's some of that electricity in the air that you talked about earlier, like that's a cool experience within the race car too. If you, even if it's something as simple as like um, when I won the, uh, or when you win the Jegs All-Stars, right? They, they send you a jacket and there's a little, you know, handwritten note from, from Jeg Jr. or something like that. That's cool. You know what I mean? Like I don't care who you are. Like that's a big deal. And so when you get more involvement like that, like it's not necessarily, I guess it kind of comes back to some of that abundance mindset, like that's not necessarily at the expense of the racers. Like you make the whole thing cooler. I think back to like the two biggest moments in my own racing career are staging for the final of the Spring Fling Million in Vegas, which was cool in a lot of aspects because like it's not like the pet stands were full, but I could look around at any second and see like all of these people that I've looked up to my whole life are watching this round, you know, not, yeah. to, not to even mention the live feed aspect. And the fact that I'm racing for like more money than I'd ever seen in my life, right? And then juxtapose that, the other big moment is staging for the final round of the US Nationals, which is for like 10% of the purse. But the electricity of Indy, the history of Indy, the stands being full, like that's a moment that I will never forget. So there's lots of ways to go about that. And I just think like just from a, I guess an unforgettable moment portion of it, the more that we elevate the other aspects of the race, like the cooler it is and the more memorable that moment becomes. It's funny because, and I think this might be a, a fun way for us to close, but I'm reminded hearing you say that Luke, uh, and this maybe exists in every walk of life and everything we do, people make all the difference, right? And I think people, promoters, event organizers are sleeping on the difference people can make. And I'm not talking about like a really great crew chief, I'm talking about just people, bodies, human bodies. You, there's something that happens when you just bring human beings together in a single location. And I've, you know, I understand there's some checkered, the history books, the, the notes in the history books about free tickets or whatever vary. But I've encouraged people, like there's a lot of ways to skin that cat or whatever. And you don't just have to be, I mean, a little, I guess, just advice is like, don't talk, give away tickets, but you don't have to talk about it. You don't have to put it on Facebook that the reason people are here is because we gave 6,000 tickets to the local high school or whatever. There's a lot of different ways to do that stuff. And I think that if a people, if race promoters, you know, especially the sports and bracket race promoters, um, 
some of these events that are really participant driven, if you could wrap your head around what can we do, lower our ticket prices, give away tickets, what can we do to get people here? Um, maybe we need to have a band. Maybe we need to do, we have a festival. Maybe we need to have a barbecue contest. Maybe we need to have um, uh, carnival games. I don't know. I'm just throwing it. What can we do to get people to come out here and be a part of this? Because you got to get them there. We're never going to get them. I mean, we got to, it, it may not be, you know, a really tight package and a 001 light, that's probably not going to get Tom off the street to show up at the track. So what can we do to get him there? And one of the things that people I think fail to realize is that, you know, early in Elvis Presley's career, the general and his, his, the team around him, they would take seats out of auditoriums if the tickets weren't sold because they could not let Elvis Presley play sing in front of anything less than a sold out crowd. So if they didn't sell all the tickets, they took those chairs out, right? So that's Elvis Presley. I mean, I'm a huge Elvis fan and I think he's like, him and Jesus are like pretty close. Uh, but my point is just that that's one of the biggest acts of all time. And at one point they were taking seats out, right? So, you know, even in the, the playwright days, right? Shakespeare, I mean, there is a there is a thing for playhouses uh, and theaters, a, a term, a phrase called papering the house. And that's where you would just go find people to sit in the seats. You would literally give tickets away, whatever you had to do to get them there. And I think that people need to open their eyes to, hey, go to your local Ronald McDonald thing and get some some cancer patients out here. There's there's ways to do it and make it effective, um, but just get people there. And if that's giving away tickets. I go to every one of these towns that I go to and I travel a lot. I've been blessed to go to races all over. Every time I'm driving to a racetrack, it never fails that I pass Chevy dealerships. I pass Dodge dealerships. I pass O'Reilly's and I pass a body shop. And I pass, I mean, do all those guys have tickets? Because they should. Every one of those guys should have tickets. They should have a stack of tickets in the body shop, a stack of tickets. And I just, what are you going to hurt? Those guys aren't going to come. More than likely, they're not coming. So let's get them out there and get them to buy a t-shirt. And I know it sounds simple or whatever, but like, let's just get them out here to be a part of this deal because it makes a huge difference for the difference for the racers. And just to kind of book in that uh, thought, it's hard to sell sponsorships when those stands are empty. It's hard to sell that. It's hard to do that. It's hard to, I'm a pretty good bullshitter and talker, but if you bring a sponsor out to a race and there ain't nobody there, it's hard. It's hard to overcome that. It's hard to, to, it's, you can't, you can't hardly have enough racer participation. You can't, you can't have enough people watching on the live feed to change the mood. And the mood is that no one's here or very few people are here. And I would encourage promoters just to get creative, you know, especially in 2021, the challenge is probably never going to be greater than it is right now uh, to get people out. So I think you're going to have to be creative. I think you're going to have to put, set aside some of your pride. Like I know there are several sanctions and series that are like, I'm never giving away a ticket because there is, there's some truth to the fact that if you give it away, there's no value, right? I mean, you, you got to charge for it, but that's when that's just saying that the opening the gates, I'm saying do it strategically. You know what I mean? Like when you're giving a ticket that's worth $50 or worth $25, to, for free to someone at a hospital or someone in a burn unit or someone at a police station or whatever. Um, that's not, it's not valueless, right? It, it, it's the exact opposite. So, but you're hundred percent right, man. Having people in the stands makes all the difference. I can call up a hundred different door slammer racers right now 
and they'll tell you that like that some of their most memorable experiences were probably at the Gator Nationals, the U.S. Nationals, or at a, a variety of different ADRL races at the height of the ADRL in the late 2000s. And it's the, the same reason. It's not purse money. It's not history. It's not um, the competition. It's not who they were racing in the final. It's the fact the place was packed. 100%. Wes, man, as always, I, it's such a pleasure catching up with you and getting some of your perspective. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I, I had some stuff on the agenda that we didn't get to. I got to have you back on sometime. This is always We'll fun. do it again. I love it, man. Thank you so much, Luke. Awesome. Take care, buddy. Thanks, brother. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, and you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.